This week's episode of the Parlay in All Blue takes us to Bellevue, Maryland. Bellevue is located in Maryland's eastern shore in Talbot County. Astute observers of history will note that Talbot County is the birthplace of abolitionist Frederick Douglass. It should also be noted that about 128,000 enslaved Africans entered the United States, entered North America through the Chesapeake Bay, many of them through the Port of Oxford, which is a UNESCO slave route of remembrance. It's also right there next to Bellevue, very close, right there. Also right there at Maryland's eastern shore is Unionville. It's a community founded by former slaves and free blacks. Lot of history right there. Now amidst all of this rich blackness is a cultural slice of Wakanda, a historical slice of Wakanda called Bellevue. Bellevue was a self-sustaining black community that was home to its own school district, general stores, commercial seafood business called the Turner Seafood Factory, social organizations, churches, and yes, juke joints. Now, we always have to have juke joints because as Albert Murray said, the blues are born out of the Saturday night function and the Sunday ritual. In other words, a good church needs good jukes. I digress. Now, back to today. We have development and gentrification. Change is not bad, but erasure is. Fortunately, this is a story, and this episode is about memory, agency, organization, and leadership. The DeShields family has six generations that call Bellevue home. Our guest this week, Dr. Dennis DeShields, joins us to talk about the many ways that his family and other residents and partners are working to preserve the memory of Bellevue, but also how to work to combat erasure, especially erasure of black history and culture that often accompanies gentrification. So the watchwords for this episode are memory and agency and citizenship. You'll see here that this is not a sad story about we're just going away, but there are a lot of nuggets to be gleaned on how to use your resources, your talents, and yes, the government, in order to preserve history and culture and dignity and all of those things. We wanna thank Dr. DeShields for joining us and hope that you enjoy this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Dennis DeShields, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Well, listen, thank you for your time, and we are really happy to to have you. And I want to to start with the 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 business at hand and get to the most important thing first. Where is Bellevue, Maryland, and what makes it special? Well, Bellevue, Maryland um, is located approximately an hour and a half from Washington, D.C., or 40 minutes from the capital of Maryland, Annapolis. And it's located on the eastern shore, which means that you have to cross the, the Bay Bridge, which is about a five-mile span 
uh, which connects the western shore of Maryland to the uh, eastern shore of Maryland. It crosses the Chesapeake. And Bellevue is located in, it's, it's right now, the city is called Royal Oak, Maryland. And it's located between Oxford, and you would take a ferry to, um, across the Tredavon River to get to Bellevue, Maryland. So it's the Oxford-Bellevue Ferry, which is one of the oldest private ferries um, that's been in existence in the United States. Well, unfortunately, what part of Bellevue is part of a tourist loop in which a lot of residents go to St. Michael's, they cross the ferry on their way to, to Oxford, Maryland. And uh, what happens, unfortunately, a lot of times they bypass Bellevue and don't even see it. And the thing that's unique about Bellevue is that during the period of segregation, it was a, really a self-sustaining African-American community in which the main uh, source of business was, was the seafood uh, industry. At one time, they did have a black-owned seafood packing plant called the Turner Packing Plant, which during its heyday had approximately uh, 70 employees. And we're mm. probably looking at the size of Bellevue. It's about a, maybe about 1.5 square miles. So, um, so we're not looking at a big community as well. Yeah, uh, and so with that, it's a, it's a, it's so it's a maritime community first off, which makes it special in and of itself. And it is, from my understanding, at one point, and I think you were beginning to open the door to some of this, a self-sustaining African American community historically. Yes, at the time during its heyday, um, they had. Uh, they still have the church, which is St. Luke's uh, Methodist Church, which is still in existence now. But the supporting businesses, they had uh, restaurants, they had uh, lodges. Also, they had, I call them juke joints, uh, which were present there, in which apparently during its heyday, they had a lot of people who were coming from the nearest town, which was Easton, would come there to have their, their social functions as well. And at one time, they also had their own school system during segregation and also had their own uh, Negro Baseball League as well. Wow. That's I mean, that's a that that truly is self-sustaining and self-sufficient. And I, I have to admit that until we connected, I was unaware of the rich history there. I know about, you know, on the surfaces of Talbot County and Frederick Douglass being there and and Maryland and the Eastern Shore. And, and also along in that area in Oxford, there's a UNESCO slave route of re- remembrance. So I, I do know there's a rich African-American community history there, for sure. Yes. In fact, um, one of the things that we are trying to do to bring visibility to the Bellevue community is to establish a, a Bellevue Passage Museum which would celebrate the the contributions and the heritage of this Bellevue community. But in addition to that, there is a, a another museum in Oxford called the Water's Edge Museum, which celebrates the African-American founding families. And basically, there are portraits uh, which were painted by uh, the artist called Ruth Star Rose. And basically what she did is she captured the, the essence of the African-American community during this time. This was like in the 20s, 1920s. And it, it showed us as, as very regal 
people. And it just really gives you a sense of pride just seeing the porches that she did capture. Also, as you had mentioned earlier, that uh, this is a UNESCO site in which um, Oxford is one of the northern middle passage points on the eastern shore. So with the, the two museums, we hope to tie in the connection and also to to be able to capture students as well as tourists as they are touring the Oxford and the, you know, and traveling to through Bellevue community as well. So it's really a natural fit for the both of the museums to work in collaboration with each other. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned going back to the 1920s. How far does your family go back in, in Bellevue? I'm the fourth generation uh, resident of, of Bellevue. I remember my great-grandfather, and that's, that's at least 60-some years ago. And I just remember him. Bellevue was always a place. My father was a military in the military, so I was a military brat. But Bellevue was always a sense of home for him. So there was always a connection that even though I didn't live there on a 24-hour basis when I was younger, we would always go back there during the summer. Uh, my grandmother uh, lived there. My great-grandfather lived there as well. So for me, it was always kind of a, a place of connection. And you know, if you would have asked me 10 or 20 years ago if I would be living or connected to Bellevue, I'd probably said, no, I don't think so. But, um, you know, things change, and the things we say always change sometimes. So. Oh, yeah. Home is home and home calls and, and, and pulls you back uh, one way, one way or another. I, I want to ask you this. Who is Colonel William DeShields? That's my father. That is and your father. He was really the the emphasis in terms of my interest in, in Bellevue, that he was always a avid historian. He was the um, chapter historian for the uh, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. He was an original Tuskegee Airman, but he was um, he was the chapter historian to one of the chapters. I can't remember which chapter it was, and so that he always had this rich history of collected history, particularly African American history. And my great my grandmother was also she was um, very interested in history. And before she passed away, she asked my father to make a museum and. What he was able to do is he got, you know, those prefab storage sheds and converted it and put some of her books in and put it in her backyard. And if you look at it, most people would say, this is not a museum. This is just a shed with stuff in it. But the fact that he took the time to do that and to honor my grandmother's wishes. Moving forward, you know, my father is getting older now and he does have a lot of collections, pictures, memorabilia that are really at risk of being uh, forgotten if they're not you know, cataloged or, or, or preserved. And so that's one of the things that we're hoping to do with the Bellevue Passage Museum is to preserve not just his uh, collections and pictures, but pictures and collections of, of residents of the community who've lived there in the past and those who are currently there, living there as well. And the outpouring has been very good in terms of people in the community have, have you know, volunteered and, and given us pictures to take pictures of or to, to copy and artifacts as well to put into the museum as well. Now, 
we're not looking in terms of the size of the museum. It's not the right. size of the Smithsonian. Uh, we're probably looking at a 20 by 30 uh, structure. And so with that, we really are going to have to be creative in terms of how we are going to display you know, some of the exhibits as well. Yeah. Well, so I will say this. The one thing that I have am beginning to learn is that all stories are important and all histories are important and that for Black folks, it is particularly important that we are intentional about preserving that history because it's uh, so much of the history was erased. You mentioned the sort of middle, middle passage and the port there at Oxford or what have you. So, so much of our history has to be re-put together. And don't even get me started on the rash of anti-CRT laws, which makes it harder for all people, for all Americans, for all people immigrating to the country to actually understand how the the country was formed and and how we got to where we are. So size, literally, in this case, does not matter. I do want to ask a little bit about your your grandmother in saying, you know, that in wanting to preserve, what, what type of person was she? She was a very talkative person, and sometimes it would be kind of hard to, where are you going with this, Grandma? But um, she um, basically had a high school education, but she was a very intelligent, wise person, a lot of common sense. And I just remember her as an avid reader in terms of she had a collection of, of books of different areas of interest. And that was my big impression. And my aunt also lived with my grandmother, and she was a school teacher. So she also kind of emphasized to my sister and I the importance of, of reading and of getting a good education as well. And my grandmother has passed away, but my aunt uh, is currently still living. She's 93, and she currently resides in Bellevue um, as well. And she is. Sharp as attack, um, and very still very independent, which is that's awesome. That's awesome. How how old is your aunt, if I may ask? Uh, she's ninety three. Ninety three. Okay. All right. All right. So help me help me. I just want to go back. So I have you. I have your dad, uh, Colonel William DeShields. Have your grandmother, and you said now you you remember your great grandfather and. Who was he and when did he come to the Bellevue area? I'm not sure exactly when he, I believe he was born and raised there, but I'm not sure of the date in which he was born. But he was a waterman. And I remember my father was telling me that, you know, during the area of depression, that he was really a sustainer for a lot of people in the community in terms of being able to fish. He was independent. He also had his farm with uh, chicken and cows as well. And my father would say that they were living uh, during World War II. They were they moved to Wilmington to participate in the uh, and my, my great my grandfather was participating in the shipbuilding for World War II. But they would always come back to Bellevue, and they would say that you know they would get a lot of food from my great grandfather when they would go back. And he, I just remember that. You know, the times that I was, when I was young, that he was living by himself. He was uh, in his own house that he owned. He had, you know, hunting dogs, chicken coops, uh, pigeon coops. And 
he was self-sustained. And the thing that I remember the most was that he didn't have any running water or bathroom facilities. So he would have a pump outside that you would have to pump your own water. And during my time there, that was like the funnest thing, seeing his water coming out of the pump. But the worst thing is that he didn't have a bathroom and he had an outhouse. And that was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so that was kind of uh, eye-opening experience as well. But I, he just, he during my time, my, my memory of him was that he was a very quiet man. And he um, was really about business. In fact, he made his own deep duck decoys and he uh, led hunting expeditions too for, for other members of, of the community as well. So I wanted to dig back into a little bit of you. You talked about the community and sort of what made itself sustaining. And I just want to dig into one. You mentioned the, um, it had its own school system. Now, was that a part of the Rosenwald school that was there or were there other schools or Yes, that was, um, it was during the period of segregation. And so it was a Rosenwald school. Um, it was, I believe it was a one room school house. And I don't have too much history of that because during you know, when I was younger, the school was torn down. And so there's not anything to, I do have a couple of pictures of the students who were there at the time. In fact, um, one of the pictures has my grandmother in it when she was a little girl. But it was, obviously, a lot of this was because of the segregation that was going on during the period that, uh, of time, uh, that the reason why the school was established. And come to find out, this area of Bellevue has one of the highest number of college graduates, professional people, military people from such a small community. And I believe that probably started when my father was, as a child, that we were seeing that. They did have a physician that would practice um, in Maryland, in Bellevue. He wasn't established there, but he would come and, and see patients there for, for house calls as well. Yeah. And and you also mentioned uh, the Turner Packing Plant. Are there any, when I hear something like Turner Packing Plant, that's the, the Turner says that. Are, do you know if any of the Turners or Turner family are still there or in that area? Yes, uh, there is Mr. Edsel Turner, who basically he was one of the owners, along with his brother, who passed away of the, the Bellevue Seafood Packing Plant. The business closed, I believe, in 1998. He has a rich history, has a rich history in terms of, I think, the thing that he can give you is that he can give you a perspective of the business aspect of running the seafood industry, especially as an African-American male during the period you know, when things may not have been as open um, as well. And his father was also the previous owner of, of the, the seafood uh, packing plant, the Turner Seafood Packing Plant. Yeah, you 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 mentioned and you sort of are building around the richness of the community. You talked about businesses, schools, and then the high percentage of high achievers, people again, going to college and military service or what have you. What do you think the secret sauce in Bellevue was or is that produced that that level of, of, of Black talent? That's a good question. Um, I 
these are just my opinions. You can take them for what they're worth. But I, I think maybe just being in a society that was segregated, that a lot of the opportunities were not available at the time. And so you kind of had to make do and kind of help each other to achieve. And I think that that may have been responsible. And also because it was just a small community where everybody knew each other, I think that also was playing a factor uh, in it as well. Those are just my opinions, but by by no means that's doesn't mean it's true or not. So. Hey, hey, listen. I, I think your, your your opinion is 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 pretty solid there because the one thing that I, I you know whether I think any part of the globe the the richer the community the stronger sense of of a family by you know, various definitions of what it may look like and and those kind of types of things tends to produce some really really good outcomes. So I don't think you are. Are wrong there. So from what I hear is you're describing to me, in my view, first off, it's a maritime community. So I'd imagine that it's beautiful in terms of being on the water and, and, and that kind of thing. And then this historic black community and African-American community and, and having its own businesses, schools, and sort of uh, social supports. Like you said, the juke joint. Juke joints are really important. So, so that's that's we we don't ever want to underestimate juke joints. That's, that's right. We don't ever want to un- underestimate the importance of having a position and valuing education and all of those things seems really important. So for me, it would seem like this is the a place that we as a country, or certainly the state of Maryland and in the region there would want to preserve. But my understanding is that some of its history, Bellevue's history, is under threat of erasure. You're correct. And um, a lot of the commercial buildings that they've had, um, there were probably about eight commercial buildings during during its heyday. We're now down to two. And I'm counting the church as commercial, but it's not a commercial building. But the, the building that we're trying to restore into a museum is the really the only commercial building that we have. And with anything, it's the time is, that everyone is hearing is that um, we're facing uh, gentrification and also development is coming in and, and clearly really trying to, I don't, I don't know if it's intentional or just because of lack of sensitivity, is you know, trying to remodel or reshape the community without respecting the, the heritage um, or the rich history. And I'm, I'm not against change at all. I think that, you know, we evolve and we have to, have to change. But I think that when we do change, that we do have to respect uh, the community that we're coming into and, and listen to them to see if we can incorporate some of the the concerns that they have in, in terms of my projects that we do develop as well. So I'm a developer. And so that has been, um, the development has come in. They uh, initially wanted to call it North of Oxford, which was just kind of a slap in the face to the Bellevue residents. And fortunately, the Bellevue residents, they, they came together as a community, black, white, different uh, economic backgrounds came together and say, you know, there is a culture here in Bellevue that we want you to respect. And they did change the name, but 
they still are continuing to develop. The other thing is that's unique about the Bellevue community is that there was a master plan that was developed in which they, Talbot County, um, which Bellevue is located in, interviewed the residents of Bellevue and said, what's important to you and what's not important? What do you value or what are your biggest fears? And so all of those things were clearly laid out. It's just a matter of you kind of reading and uh, and looking and, and seeing what it was that was important for the community as well. And I'm at the point that, you know, sometimes we as African-Americans, we are left with roadside stands saying this was this lie, such and such. Whereas other cultures have things that they can touch and feel and go into. And there's a big difference between touching and feeling something and looking at a roadside plaque. And so that was also one of the things that kind of got me excited about, you know, developing the Bellevue Passage Museum. And for me, the Bellevue Passage Museum is, is just a stepping stone. I would like to see this become a revitalized community or possibly an incubator type of community in which we're bringing people to the community, you know, giving them, this is, this is my long-term goal, now, providing resources to the community and also being in a, in a position that we can offer the residents of the community, number one, you know, environmental justice in terms of your right to, you know, your energy consumption. Let's get you not dependent on gas or oil. Heat. Let's see if we can help to convert you to something that's more efficient. And with doing that and, and hopefully getting more affordable housing so that we can hopefully help people, empower people so that they can save money to be able to to go on and do better things or, or other things that they would want to do. So this is kind of, for me, this is just the start of the museum. Basically, the museum is just to bring exposure to the Bellevue community. People accuse me of wanting to make this Wakanda again. So that's like, what? That's not such a bad thing, is it? That's not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. But um, I, they kid with me about that. But I, you know, I think, well, maybe they got something there. Yeah. Well, so, so I listen. I want to, if you will, indulge me for a minute, and um, I will tell you why everything that you're saying is resonating with me, and why it's also very important. One is, you know, we are in the midst of, as a country, you know, sort of, especially I'm here in Atlanta, right? And Stone Mountain is not far from here. And throughout the South and throughout various parts of the country, we have laws in place to keep Confederate monuments in place. And they can't, like, legally can't be removed. So we have laws in place to preserve the history of people who took up arms in rebellion against the country and who were against all of what we what we now know as sort of the enlightenment principles and sort of the rights of man and and uh, everyone's created equal and would have liked to have continued enslavement and bondage forever. And so we have laws in place to prevent that, and we have people that will go to to great lengths to preserve that. So that stands in contradiction to 
you know, sort of the erasure in places like Bellevue and others. That's number one. For me, as a person who I enjoy history and, and African-American history. And so when you're talking about your, your grandmother wanting to preserve things, that's kind of right up my alley. But I, I have to tell you that Beacon Hill in Boston, which now is near Boston Common, and you know it's a very upscale kind of area and it's housing, houses are very expensive. But what people don't know is right in that area was a critical critical piece of history, American history, around abolition. African Meeting House was there where people like Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists would speak. The home of Lewis Hayden, who was a stop of the Underground Railroad, was is there. But the only thing you can see is a placard on the house. And it's not like a museum that's preserved that tells the story. So I want to say that your, your vision is important and starting with the uh, Passage Museum, the Bellevue Passage Museum is an important step. So thank you for indulging me on that because everything that you're saying is hits right, right, that hits at my heart. What kind of pushback are you getting in terms of wanting to preserve things and wanting the the master plan that I'm that was approved by the county? What kind of pushback are you getting there? And then conversely, what what kind of support are you getting to to keep things moving forward or to preserve things so that it, that our history is moved forward? I've gotten this whole project has gotten more support than than non-support in terms of the community of Bellevue. And even people who aren't living in the community have been very supportive in terms of donations Um uh, to the Bellevue Passage Museum. We have been able to secure um, grant funding and also a bond initiative. So the state has been very supportive of the project. I think um, right now our biggest thing is just going through planning and zoning in terms of getting all the proper permits. Um, because it's close to the water, we have to be extra careful in terms of you know, making sure that we don't uh, damage any of the wetlands. But even with that process, the county has, where their original site of the museum was, um, basically was a private property lot. And the county kind of said, you know, for what you want to do, you're going to have to get a lot of special exceptions. And it was like, it was going to be a very hard task. But one of the things that they suggested is, is that the property is right next to the, the the public park, and they said, well, why don't you put the building in the park? And so by doing that, that even allowed us to have a bigger plan uh, for the museum. So with that, we're going to incorporate a kitchen garden, natural plantings, a sitting area. In addition, we'll be able to have an auxiliary building in which we'll be able to house artifacts, have a very small office, but more importantly, I want this to be a social gathering place for the residents of communities if they, you know, have a small function, you know, that they would want to use if the building would be accessible for them as well. So I'm trying to, with all of this, it's not about me, it's more about community. How can we bring the community together? And, you know, when I say community, 
I'm talking any of the residents who are living are living in Bellevue now, regardless of of color or background, because we all have an interest in the community of Bellevue, um, and I think that that's what, if anything, the builder, the developer, kind of galvanized the community together to bring us together. It was the adversity that brought us together, and right now my daughter is. Um, in the process of having, she's developing a newsletter that will go out monthly to the, to the residents of Bellevue. And basically, it's to kind of connect people with, you know, asking when your birthdays are or you know, any special occasions or if there are any articles that you would want to, to mention. But this would be a platform for you to to, to speak and, and get the word out. So I'm, I'm in, more encouraged by the positive things that have taken place um, and it, it far surpassed, uh, surpasses the negative things that we've encountered as well. So, but, you know, I, I think the biggest task right now is just, is just, you know, going through the permitting process. And that's really is taking the longest part. But I know that once that's approved, and I know it will be, that, you know, the movement of the museum will, will be very rapid as well. You've also had or uh, done some work with or with uh, Washington College there in, in the field school. And what did what, yes. what did they do specifically and how did that come about? That was a grant that was uh, from the Mellon Foundation that was uh, given to Washington College. And what uh, field school, it was 10 um, African-American students, actually 12 African-American students who lived in the Bellevue community for a month. And what they did was um, they studied some of the, the older homes that were in the community. A lot of the homes have been remodeled, um, but there's still some, some old features that were, that they felt was amenable to studying. And there was also a few homes that were just um, at risk of being, of being of falling apart just due to neglect. So they went in and they studied the homes, the architect of the homes. They also gathered a world history of some of the older residents of the Bellevue community as well. It's a two-year project, so they will be coming back next year um, as well. But our goal is to incorporate some of that information that they have in, into the Bellevue Museum. And we want it to be presented something that the lay public would be able to easily understand and digest versus an academic paper uh, type of, of interest as well. With that, that's kind of been a stepping stone that um, some of the students there had expressed an interest in developing possibly an environmental justice center in which the goal would be to go into homes that are threatened with communities that are threatened with erasure and maybe give boots on the ground experience in terms of having a point person that they can talk to in terms of giving them resources. So we're looking at trying to make Bellevue kind of a test case for that and trying to to fix that so that if it's successful, being able to go into other communities that may be threatened with erasure as well. Now, granted, every state is different. So some states are maybe more access, more resources than other states as well. But that's that's just part of me in terms of, you know, I've been blessed with so much. And for me, it's, it's really gives me a sense of joy to be able to 
to share any knowledge that I have, especially if it's going to help someone live a better life um, as well. Thank you for that. You mentioned earlier a couple of words that that are can be be hot topics. Gentrification, and you said this is a developer and development, and not seeing you in writing through an op-ed that you penned and another interview that you are not opposed to change at all. This is not about fighting change. A couple of things there. When we say gentrification and change and what you're what, what I hear you're describing is change is good, but let's do it in a way that's respectful and that doesn't erase the history or culture there. Am, am I capturing, I want to make sure I'm capturing that, that correctly. How does that happen? So you, 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 it sounds like you're having some success, whereas other communities aren't having it. So what advice would you have for communities who are facing change, but have history that they want to preserve you know, what are some of the things that they can do or should do? That's a good question, I think. And I'm not sure if I can answer that question because all I can do is I can just kind of say what has seems to be working for us. And I think the, the first thing is, is knowing what access and what resources that you do have. And that in itself can be a very daunting task if you don't have somebody there that's used to navigating those resources and saying this is what you need to do. You know, fortunately with the Bellevue community, we had with a developer, part of the residents of one of the streets in Bellevue has issued a lawsuit uh, to the developer. And we were fortunate enough to have a lawyer, a retired lawyer, he said, I'm going to volunteer my services. And he came out of retirement to represent the residents of Orchard Terrace. So I think as we've had people in place who've had access to, I want to say, power mm-hmm. and who can were able to tell me or tell the residents, these are the things that you need to do in order to bring about the change or to stop some of the things that may be going on. And I, I understand that, that that that's not available everywhere. And that's part of my 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 drive is to see if there's a way, once all of this is said and done, if we would be able to kind of package this and be able to be a resource for other communities based on the resources that they have available to them. In terms of getting money, Dr. Peka, Barbara Peka, she um, is the director of the Water's Edge Museum. She was very instrumental in terms of helping us to obtain funding in terms of these are the grants that you need to apply for and just having being connected to people. Now, Talbot County is probably one of the richest counties in the United States. So there are a lot of people who are looking for a good cause to donate to. And it's just a matter of really tapping into those sources and and showing them what your passion is and um, and seeing why this is important. So we've been blessed with having a lot of resources available, but I, I do understand that those resources may not be available for every community. But I think the the biggest thing that I would suggest 
is that find out what your resources you have available, what options you have available in terms of if it's raising money or if it's legal means um, um, as well. But again, every community is different. And um, unfortunately, I wish I had a magic wand to say this is going to work in every community and as well. I'm sorry to be long-winded. No, 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 no. Actually, because here's here's what I would here's what I'm taking away from the conversation around this is one there's a master plan and that was approved by the county and you talked about state being supportive and having bonds and then you mentioned partnerships from citizens regardless of whether they're black white people how long you you've been there and tapping into to resources so I think you're really pointing to some important things. And, you know, I I am a big advocate and we have advocated on this show of really not just not just voting, which is so important, but understanding how your local government, how your how your county and how your state works. I mean, just just that that seems to be important. That sort of just basic citizenry is important. Yes. And and even that aspect, um, you know, if you had asked me a year and a half ago about being involved with the county, you know, we will be meeting. We I've had kind of conversations with some of the members of the county council. There is a recent election, which um, we're still waiting for the final results to come back. But I know going forward that there's going to be discussions with the county council. And I say this to say that a year and a half ago, I would have said, are you out of your mind? I'm not going to be talking to anybody else about this. But this opportunity has forced me to do things that are outside of my comfort zone. And I think that that's one of the things that we as African-Americans need to make sure is that sometimes we need to get out of our comfort zones and we need to do things that make us uncomfortable and realizing that that, uh, there is a lesson to be learned in that and that if we stick with it long enough to know that that lesson until that lesson is learned, um, I always have this expression with my children and with anybody who's ever talked to me is that it's like baking a cake. Sometimes when we are in the heat and putting the cake in the fire, the tendency is to take the cake out before it's finished baking. Mm. And then what do we have? We're left with a mess. So sometimes we have to stay within that pressure, that that uncomfortable situation until the cake is done. And then we do learn from, from the experiences and we're able to, to, to give that wisdom to someone else um, afterward as well. Amen and amen. And listen, we can open the doors of the church with that one because I, <laughs> I tell people, Listen, there's some really important things that you're saying. I mean, your county and local government and voting and knowing those officials is really important. And I think for for black folks, and this is why preserving Bellevue and the museum that you're working on there and and the memories that your grandmother asked to be preserved is so important, is that when we have these romantic views of places like Tulsa, you know, in the Greenwood area that's burned and um, in um, Rosewood and other places is that the building was done by humans, right? There wasn't this angelic group of people that came down and did it. It's, it's done by humans. And what you're describing 
is what I always say is there is no they. The they is us. It's you, Dr. Shields, and your neighbors and people in the county that are are making this happen. So I I I applaud you are for that and thanks for those um those words of wisdom. A couple of things as we sort of begin to to round out. You mentioned environmental justice a couple of times in the conversation. And I as someone as a as a as a as a black person who I've earned these gray uh these gr- these grays in my beard so I've been around a little bit, but it is something that five years ago and I'm not saying all black people weren't on this. I'm saying me, Mark, and many people weren't talking about environmental justice. Why is that important to to black people? I think, number one, if we don't have environmental justice, we're seeing the effects of, of not having a policy. I think in terms of for, for me, for environmental justice, I see this as a way of, well, just kind of bringing it down from my viewpoint would be what are the biggest barriers for young people today? Housing is a big expense. Cars are a big expense. And if there's a way in which we can reduce the cost of those, that would bring more money to the individual um, and they would have more of a spending power and have more clout with that. But if we are constantly paying more for our utilities than someone who has the means of having a more efficient system, then we're always going to be behind. And so for me, I'm trying to look at how we can make this on a more personal level in terms of, and I'm, I'm looking at you know, the Bellevue community because I'm looking at, we do have older people in the community that are still using you know, oil heat, and, you know, with the price of oil fluctuating so much, you don't know what your bill is going to be from one month to, to another. And if if we can at least target those homes that are maybe not energy efficient, looking at how we can make them energy efficient, you know, it's the gamut. It may be in terms of fixing the roof, insulation, putting a more efficient heating unit to the Cadillac in terms of solar energy. And seeing how we can save money that way so that there's not an inequity between, you know, what African-Americans may be paying. Um, In fact, I did read an article that sometimes the utility companies are really kind of tone deaf to minority communities in terms of what they're paying, you know, for utility bills versus other communities as well. The other big thing would be, you know, if we're looking at is getting rid of, you know, our, the carbon, lowering our carbon footprint. The other issue would be tackling automobile transportation. Everybody needs some type of transportation, but the price of automobiles are becoming higher and higher. And, you know, you, you have to be able to have a car and a lot of jobs now. And my thing would be is, well, how can we make electricity? And I'm looking at Bellevue. How can we bring electric cars to Bellevue? And I haven't thought of it all the way through. It's just kind of an idea. Why not have a community bank where we have automobiles that are electric that people can use um, to do local errands? Or, um, you know, we would have to kind of figure out how we would structure people using the cars. 
But just think of the the oil dependency that would be decreased um, just within that community. And I'm looking at Bellevue because it was it's a small community, and it would be a good test case to work on in terms of looking at how we can make small communities energy efficient. You know, unfortunately, some communities they uh, may have solar energy, but if the utility company is not going to reimburse you for the for the amount of money that you're saving them, then there's there's a big investment in terms of you know you may be looking at ten or twenty thousand dollars just to put panels on. And yeah. a lot of people don't have that money to be able to do that, you know, right away, even though there may be some savings uh, later down the line. So my thing would be is looking at environmental justice in terms of making it so that everybody has access to efficient forms of energy and transportation in order for them to save money so that they can use that money for other resources as well. Yeah, what what you're you're making is a, is a very strong point of of environmental jo- justice and sort of economic justice have a hand in hand with each other. In addition to all of the things about quality of life and and sort of making it easier for people to get around and what have you. So I think all of that is really important. Thank you for for that. You talked about what is the Bellevue's history and what made it what made it such a special place and what what makes it worth preserving. What about Bellevue now is special? And I know your daughters moved back and you and your wife are there. What you know, if if you're making a pitch to somebody to come to uh, live in Bellevue now, what what why why would I do that? I, I can only just say from a personal level. Um, that you know, my wife and I are, are physicians, and you know, before we moved to Bellevue, we were very busy careers and young children, and we could just see our lives being kind of separating because of the other demands of the career. And you know, we had we hired somebody to help to to sit with our kids, and I was telling my wife that I'm paying a mortgage for somebody to watch my kids because I'm never there. And so we kind of, I think what drew us to Bellevue is my my grandfather had passed away and he was buried in Eastern Maryland. And so it was like, well, you know, this is kind of a nice place to live. We can live here. And so we kind of made a decision that we wanted to kind of simplify our lives. And, you know, our people, people were saying, are you out of your mind? You know, this is going to be a career killer you moving here and it wasn't the case. Um, I think that if anything, it did enrich our lives even more. We uh, became closer. We got to know our children. And and even with just being physicians in the community, um, it has enabled us to know people. And there's a close connection with just kind of knowing the people in the community. You know, even if it's on a passing basis, so, oh, yeah, you took care of my aunt or you took care of my father. And with it being such a small community, and I'm talking about the Eastern community, um, it's allowed us to sit on on organizations that would have an impact uh, on on the community as well. My daughter, she's a marketing for a gaming company, and she just recently, her and her husband recently moved uh, back, I say, to Bellevue about six to eight months ago, and. I think that what everyone says, I remember when I was staying with my grandmother, that 
it was one of the hottest days and she didn't have air conditioning and I had to spend a night and I said, if I ever make it through this night, I will never come back to this place. So I ended up eating my words. My sister said the same thing. She ended up eating her words. And my daughter is also saying the same thing as well. And I think that with with my daughter making the transition, it's allowed her to be closer to the family. And she does have a, a young daughter. And it's allowed us to kind of be a resource and a help for her and her husband as well in terms of raising. And it's helped us to be around our granddaughter, too, which is very special. So that makes six generations then. If your granddaughter, that's that's six generations of DeShield. So so that's clearly a special place. Uh, one more question before we, we get to the end. You said your dad was a historian for the airmen. Was he what's what's his connection to the Tuskegee Airmen? I can't remember the chapter, but he was the the historian for the Tuskegee Airmen. So during the time they have a lot of uh, photos of the Tuskegee Airmen. He would put those together and put those on displays. So when they had their functions, that they would you know, have something for the general public to look at as well. He would also go on uh, speaking engagements in terms of talking about the history of the Tuskegee Airmen. But again, he, was, he wasn't an original Tuskegee Airmen, but he was a member of the chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen um, as well. Got it. Got it. So now I, I have to say this. You, you know, you you've downplayed sort of your involvement in things that are, you know, like, you know, I don't know this. This is the first time I've done it. I know that you are a physician by training and by profession. But to me, it sounds like you are a statesman, whether you have formal office or not, <laughs> whether you are elected or not. You sound like a statesman. And I know in Maryland, probably something that your great grandfather and your grandmother could not have imagined is a black governor of Maryland, you know, recently elected. Do you have those sort of aspirations? No, 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 no. no. (laughs) Okay, so. I tell you what, I'm going to leave that there with that no, no, no. And we're going to record that. And (laughs) when it happens, I'm going to send you this clip. Because, listen, in all seriousness, I have to say this. The thing that so many communities lack, leadership. And I I believe that as, as Black folks, especially people that have been blessed, privileged, fortunate, to have formal education, to be able to take that and any resources, but just in mind, because there is something about navigating these various spaces, whether it be grant writing, and not necessarily saying that the person has to write the grant, but knowing that it has to be written and what that looks like, to mm-hmm. not necessarily go to and offer testimony and file papers with the county or state, but it takes leadership. And I and I want to to say this, that you are a role model for many people who uh, I have on the Du Bois shirt shirt today of people in the so-called talented 10 using those talents, not just for because I believe you can do well and do good. You mentioned, you know, your sort of career and practice and, and those things. I think you can do both. So 
You are a role model, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, we ask everyone here at the Parlay in All Blue, we have a couple of questions that we always close with. One is, what does it mean to live well? For me, to live well is to share the talents that that you have to others so that you can help others to live well. And I think that that is the change that we need. And also to have respect for people and a love for people um, as well. And I think understanding that, you know, everybody is different, but if we if we break it all down, we all have the same needs and wants. It's just really a matter of sitting down and you know, talking with each other. So I think, I don't know if I answered your question or not. No you, answered it. no, you answered it perfectly. And again, it's your answer. And I, I think, yes, that's, that is living well. I, I recognize it. So I thank you for that. Now we uh, will we'll go to something a little lighter. And, and so there on the eastern shore in Talbot County, and I, I don't have it near me or what have you, but I've uh, recently been reading, recently in the past year, gone through biography on Frederick Douglass. And he even talked about even in the midst of bondage of looking out in terms of the Eastern Shore, how it's just beautiful and and all of those things in terms of the landscape and and what have you. So I, I, and you, you talked about it being a wealthy place or what have you, but Bellevue uh, in its history, like you said, has been Wakanda, Wakanda, and and you're trying to bring it, trying to bring Wakanda back to, um, back to the Eastern Shore. I want to ask you, a question. What do the holidays taste like on the Eastern Shore? What's on the holiday table? It depends on which holiday you're talking about. Um, For the Thanksgiving holiday, it's a traditional, for, for my family, it's a traditional holiday with the turkey and the dressing. One time we did try to have uh, introduce more seafood into that holiday, and my father had a revolt. It's like, okay. well, we're not going to anymore. Okay. But um, when we're not at holiday, you know, when it's in season, crabbing is is uh, eating crabs is blue crabs. The Maryland blue crabs um, is a very social occasion um, in terms of sitting down putting paper on the table and cracking crabs with a bunch of friends and, you know, drinking the beverage of your choice. Eating oysters when they're in season is also a big thing as well. So, and not to mention the rockfish when it's in season, Um, getting fresh rockfish will make you appreciate life on the Eastern shore as well. And if you are ever in Maryland, please, or close to Maryland, Virginia, Washington, uh, please uh, give me a call. and We would be delighted to, to show you some Eastern Shore hospitality. Oh, I got, you know what? I'm going to take you up on that. I have uh, family that way and, and, you know, listen, like a, like a lot of uh, black folks, uh, you got to find a way. There's always some reason to be in D.C. or Baltimore or t- down here in Atlanta on the reverse end. So I'd offer that to you uh, in reverse as well. One last question. And uh, again, thank you so much. And how can people support 
your work in, in the in the uh, Passage Museum before I ask the last question? We do have a website. It's called the BellevuePassageMuseum.org. And um, there is a link in there where you can make donations. Um, it's a... Um, it's a nonprofit organization. Our nonprofit status is through the Midshore Community Foundation. And so any donations would be tax deductible as well. And um, there's also a link in there for if you wanted to have additional information, you could email us and we would certainly uh, be able to get back with you too. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So. Back to it. So now I've got the picture there of I've got the crab and the oysters and the rockfish. And I have a beverage of choice, depending on if it's evening, maybe some bourbon. If it's hot during the day, I've got a beer for me. So I've got all of that. I would like to know what you, Dr. DeShields, would have, what music would be playing while I'm sitting there enjoying the hospitality there on the Eastern Shore? What 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 would I hear? Country music. Country <laughs> music, really? I'm just kidding. For me, it would be jazz oh. music. <laughs> jazz? Oh, really? Okay. Would it, would, okay, so jazz meaning because, so our show, The Parlay in All Blue, Parlay being conversation all blue. When I put together, you know, the thing I said, I want a blue note kind of jazz cover feel. So when you say jazz, who do, who, who are we talking? Miles Davis. Um, yeah. uh, he would probably be my favorite. Also, Vince Guaraldi, he's my favorite, Bill Evans. Um, so kind of mellow kind yeah, of yeah. jazz. The thing I like about Miles Davis is, is that he is very... He gets the song out with a minimal amount of notes, and you can still capture the essence of the song. And so I want to say that it's not simplicity, but he makes it sound very concise and simple. But it's I know it's very complex is what he's doing, though. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm a a, a huge uh, Miles Davis fan. My my oldest son is named Miles, and the the thing is with Miles is it's not just the notes that he's playing, it's the notes that he's not playing, right? And uh, and even in, in you mentioning Bill Evans, uh, the I tell people, and I'm not a musician, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a listener, but the Bill Evans trio, especially those classic records of sort of at the Vanguard and Waltz and Debbie and those kind of things, it's a trio, but it sounds like one instrument. They're so in tuned with each other in terms of, you know, the tone and the rhythm and everything is really, really good. And then we're in the holidays, Vince, Vince Giraldi. I mean, everybody's outside of the sort of Charlie Brown. I mean, all of his uh, albums are really good. So, so I'm there. I'm there. I've had crab, oysters, rockfish. And Miles Davis and Bill Evans, I have, and, and the work that they did together in the Miles Davis group, um, Quintet and Sextet on Kind of Blue. So we are there. Yep. And Kind of Blue, I, uh, that was the album that introduced me to the jazz, um, was when I first listened to that. Yeah. yeah, no, that kind of blue is a is a gateway uh, gateway album. I always rec- recommend that one. I also recommend some of the prestige records with uh, I think like walking and uh, walking and relaxing and the, the four records that he made with with prestige towards the end miles is miles is a good place to start 
anyway, Dr. DeShields, you've been so gracious with your time. We wish you all the best with what you're doing there at Bellevue. want to encourage our listeners to support the project and visit the Eastern Shore when you can, but also to think about how all of us can find ways to preserve our, our history as, as, as Black folks in America, that both the oral and history, but wherever we have buildings, monuments, places of remembrance, let's do that. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.